So my kids, they love to tell me their dreams in the morning, on the way to school when, when I'm driving. And their dreams are so interesting. Um, their dreams could be made into movies. I, I, it's, I don't have dreams like this. Well, actually, a couple of weeks ago, Britt and I dreamt the same night about Thanos. Isn't that really weird? <laughs> we both dreamt about Thanos. But other than that, my dreams are quite boring. I tend to have reoccurring dreams. Any of you have reoccurring dreams? I have several of them. One thing I always dream is I'm back in high school. I can't get my locker open. I don't know what my schedule is. I know I have to be in class, but I don't know which one it is and how to get there. Another dream that I often have, especially when I'm feeling overwhelmed, is that I leave a store and I'm in a parking lot and I can't find my car. And so I spend the entire night trying to find my car. And that's just not restful when you wake up in the morning to have spent the whole night trying to find your car in your dream. Now, another dream that I have, and it's not as often as those other two, but over the last 19 years, I've had it multiple times. And it's a dream that I married somebody else, specific person. I didn't marry Doug. And this dream is more like a nightmare to me. I wake up in a cold sweat, and I reach out for his shaved head, and I go, <laughs> which I would not want any other way. And I go, whew, I married Doug. Thank God I didn't marry this other person. Did you ever know someone that just made you feel like you don't measure up? Made you feel like you're just not the person that they're looking for? Well, that was this person from my dream. I just always felt not good enough. You know, I remember one time we had gone on a date, and not long after that, he said to me, he said, listen, he said, I like you, but single people in the room. If that's how someone starts the conversation, don't wait to hear what the but is. Just say, see you later. Unfortunately, I sat and I listened to what the but was. And it was so silly and so petty. And he said several things in a not so subtle way that he wanted to be different about me. And this is what he said. He said, I like you, but he's like, you know, I really like when a girl paints her nails. How ridiculous. I looked down at my unpainted nails and thought, uh-oh. You know, I don't often paint my nails. In fact, I painted my nails Friday night for the first time in about three or four years. There's something wrong with painting your nails. I just don't do it. And as I was going over my notes this morning, I was like, oh, you hypocrite. You have nail polish on. But it's just not something that I often do. I've probably painted Bryn's nails more than I've painted my own. And then he said, I really like when a girl wears her hair a certain way. And he described the hairstyle. And it looked absolutely nothing like my hair looked. And then he said this. This was the clincher. He said, you know, I like blondes. Um... This hair has been almost black since the day that I was born. I think I laughed out loud at that point in his face. I would look absolutely ridiculous if I tried to dye my hair blonde. But in order to keep this guy's attention or get this guy's attention, I would have had to make all these changes. And I doubt that even then I would have measured up. And I remember thinking, I'm just not the person that this guy is looking for. And some of us has that, have that same view of God. We think, I'm just not the person that God is looking for. We think that God is looking for someone who always has it together. You know, the person who never struggles with things like anxiety or depression. We look, think that God is looking for the person that has no struggle with sin. We think that God is looking for someone who has all kinds of natural talents and ability. And they are just so confident, confident in that talent. We think that God is looking for someone who came from a perfect family. No baggage, no scars, no wounding. We think that God is looking for somebody who has no regrets, no past, nothing in their life that they look back on with painful regret. The incredible thing is that the word of God tells us 
the person that God is looking for. And you know what? It's none of those things that I just said. We're going to be in Isaiah 66 tonight. And these verses are going to tell us the person that God looks to. Now, I just want to make a clear distinction up front. The verses that we're looking at are not talking about salvation. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're so glad that you're here. But here's what we want you to know is that God invites you to come as you are. He doesn't say to you, go change this, this, and that, and then maybe I will accept you. Our acceptance before God comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in what Jesus has done for us. He doesn't say change yourself. He doesn't say make yourself better, fix yourself up, and then approach me. You know, he says come. But the amazing thing is that he doesn't leave us as we are. He starts this incredible process of transforming us, of, of changing us, of making us more like his son. But let's just be clear. It's salvation first through grace, then it's transformation, not the other way around. But even in the process of you and I being transformed, you know, I've been a Christian for many years. There are some of you who have been a Christian in this room for a lot longer than I, and God is still working on us. There are still things in us that have to change, and it's gonna be that way, probably the side of heaven. But even in that, in our imperfections, there is a way that you and I are able to live a life that gets God's attention, that we live a life that pleases him. And that's what we're gonna be talking about tonight. And before we get started, let me just say this, that the kind of person that we're talking about tonight is not only the person that gets God's attention, but it gets the lost attention too. The person that we're talking about tonight is the kind of person that the lost, the hurting, the broken, those who are looking for answers are going to be drawn to. So let's get started. Isaiah 66, verse 1. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? God's presence cannot be contained within the walls of a church. A church building is a good thing. You know, we are thankful for this space. We are excited and, and grateful for the space that we have to look forward to. But the truth is that the church is his people and God looks to rest his presence on us, that we would be the ones that would carry his presence with us wherever we go. Isn't it true that there are certain people that you've met in your life that you could tell that there was just something about them, that they carried a deeper presence of God than others, a, a greater way that it was just evident as they spoke about the things of God. You know, if you put your trust in Christ and the Holy Spirit is in us, he is always with us, but there is a the kind of person that carries an even greater sense of his presence. Well, what kind of person is that? Let's look at verse two. It says, has not my hand made all these things so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor. Okay, so what does it mean to have God's favor? If you go home today and you Google the favor of God, you are gonna come up with some really wacky results on what that means and how you get it. A lot of times the word favor is used into just to whenever anything goes well for people. Let me give you a little tip. When someone pronounces it as favor, instead of favor, 
they probably have a misunderstanding of the word favor. Now, Doug knows that this is such a pet peeve of mine when people do this. You know, every time things go well, it's the favor of God. So he, he likes to push my buttons. So say we're, we're going to a store and he gets a great parking spot. He turns to me, he goes, look at that favor. <laughs> we go to Chick-fil-A and, and he's got an extra piece of chicken in his 12 count. And he goes, walking in the favor. <laughs> the evidence of God's favor towards you and I is not about everything going our way. It's not about finding a good parking spot and having an extra piece of chicken. It is not about having a pain-free life. You know, you can be walking through deep suffering and be someone who's carrying the favor of God on your life. Too many people have abandoned their faith because they equate everything going well with God's love and his favor. But that's not the gospel. That's not what you and I were promised. When you hear the word favor in this verse, I want you to think of the word more. The word more. His favor on us means more. More what? More of his presence. It means more of him. Remember, God just posed this question, where can I rest my presence? And then he says, this is the person or the people that I will look to Look to to do what? To rest his presence on. You see, this verse tells us that God's presence on us is his favor. And so what does more of his presence on us look like? It looks like more peace. More of a peace that doesn't make sense. It looks like more joy. More of a joy that is not connected to our circumstances. It looks like more of a closeness with him more of a heart to worship him, more of a heart to be a light for him. I don't know about you, but I want more of all those things. And verse, second part of verse two tells us the person that God looks to. So let's go on. It says this, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. So here we have three descriptions of the kind of person that God looks to to give more. And you know what we don't see? We don't see the person who is perfect, the person who is without struggle, the person who is without depression and anxiety, the person who never struggles with sin. Now we see three very different words. And so what we wanna do is look at each one of them individually. So first let's start with being humble. We're gonna talk about humility before God and then humility with each other. God is not looking for the person who thinks they have it all together. He's not looking for the person who's confident in their giftings and abilities. He's looking for the person who knows that without Christ, they are nothing. He's looking for the person who is so desperate for his presence, who knows that there is nothing of lasting value that they can accomplish without him. This is the person who is on their knees saying, God, I need you. How I need you. I can't get through this day without you. What things in life repel you? Uh, public bathrooms repel me. <laughs> I don't like using public bathrooms. I would rather wait five hours than use most public bathrooms. Well, pride, God is repelled by pride. Why is he repelled by pride? Because pride is so destructive to us. 
pride will destroy every relationship in your life. And pride blinds us to our desperate need for God. Pride says, God, I don't need you. I can do this without you. Pride says that I am confident in my own giftings and abilities apart from your help and your strength. But somebody who walks in humility recognizes their great need of God in every area of their life. Somebody who walks in humility recognizes that without God, they would be a mess. And that we wouldn't just be a mess, but we would be a hot mess without him. And the truth is that we can't be the parent, the spouse, the friend, the person who draws others to Christ apart from the grace of God. And it's in you and I understanding that that gets God's attention. It's that kind of humility that attracts his presence in our life. And so I have to ask us, do we have the posture of humility before God? And let me ask you this question, and this is kind of how you can kind of know, are you still amazed by grace? Are you amazed by the extent that Jesus went to make you and I his? When we look at the cross, do we drop to our knees and say, thank you for saving a sinner like me? Do we say, I cannot believe all that you had suffered just to make me yours? A hymn writer named Isaac Watts says, when I survey the wondrous cross, on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. There is no place for pride for those who really understand what grace means. And this understanding of grace not only produces humility in us before God, but it produces humility in us towards each other. When we lack humility, we are so critical of each other. When we lack humility, we so easily are able to see the faults in others. But this is what's so crazy, but at the same time, we are blinded to our own faults. When we lack humility, we have a really hard time showing others grace. Especially grace when we disagree with each other. See, we're gonna disagree with each other. You, all of you in your room, you, you have different things that you do differently, that you think differently than the person next to you or across from you. Let me just do a little test just to prove this. When it comes to texting, we fall into two camps. You are either an LOLer or a ha ha -er. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? When someone texts you something funny, your first response is either a LOL or a ha-ha. I want you to raise your hand if you're an LOLer. Raise your hand if you're a ha ha -er. I'm a ha ha -er. If something's really funny, I'm a ha-ha-ha-har. I have a lot of friends that are LOLers. I've tried to be an LOLer. It felt fake. <laughs> I just couldn't do it. I'm not an LOLer. I'm sorry. I'm a ha ha -er, and I will always be. <laughs> Although I'm really grateful for this emoji. I think this emoji has unified us <laughs> as LOLers and ha ha -ers. You don't have to respond. You just do that. Send that emoji, and, and they know that you are laughing out loud. <laughs> now, can LOLers and ha ha -ers get along? Of course. It's such a silly thing but you and I are gonna have differences on such a bigger scale. We are gonna have theological differences. And you know, 
unless you think that that's not a big deal, know this, that friendships have ended over theological disagreements. Families have had major conflict over theological disagreements. And this is the big one. Churches have split over theological disagreements. This is a really big deal. So now I'm gonna have everybody raise your hand when it, when it comes to things that, no, actually I'm not. <laughs> but this is what I know, that some of you in this room would say, I'm free will. And some of you would say, no, I'm, I'm predestination. Some of you would say, I believe this about end times, and I'm right. And some of you would say, no, I believe this about end times. And the question is, how do we treat those who disagree with us? Do we disagree from a place of humility? Now, I don't want to get into the details of it all, but recently there was a well-known pastor who publicly criticized and mocked somebody that they disagreed with. Um, Now, he has a right to disagree with this person theologically, but the treatment of this person was anything but humble. He put her down. He made her out to be a joke. And you know what's so interesting? is that the person who he attacked responded with such humility. When I read how they responded, it actually brought me to tears. And so which one of those two people pointed to Jesus? Which one of those two people represented him well? It was the person who responded with so much humility. How we disagree with someone tells a lot about where our heart is. You know, are we harsh? Are we graceless? Do we resort to insult and slander? You know what humility does for us? Humility recognizes that none of us are above error. You know, I I don't care how long you've been following God or how much you study the Bible, there is not one person in this room who has every single thing figured out. You know, when we get to heaven, not one of us is going to approach someone and go, you know what? See, I was right. (laughs) You were wrong all along. No, none of us are going to do that. So the question is, do we approach our differences from a place of humility? And and what does that look like? Well, I'm going to give you guys um, one of the greatest examples that I have ever seen. And in in the 1700s, there were two pastors that were really well known. Their names were George Whitfield and John Wesley. And both of them, they led thousands to Christ. They had incredible ministries, incredible influence. And these two pastors, they disagreed on a few different areas of scripture, of doctrine. They disagreed about how worship should look like within the service. You know, in all their disagreements, the thing that they did not disagree on was the gospel, the most important thing, that Jesus came to die for sinful people and rose back from the dead, making a way to reconciling us to God. And, you know, although there was a time that they were at odds, as they matured in their faith and they they matured in the place of humility, they grew to love and respect each other. One day someone said to Whitfield, we won't see John Wesley in heaven, will we? And Whitfield replied, yes, you're right, we won't see him. Because he's going to be so close to the throne of God that we won't even catch a glimpse of him. At one point when Wesley appeared to be close to death, Whitfield wrote him, and this is what he said, a radiant throne awaits you, and ere long you will enter into your master's joy. He stands with a massive crown, ready to put it on your head amidst an admiring throng of saints and angels. How different is that humility compared to the way this other pastor 
tore down and mocked someone he disagreed with? What was he saying? Yeah, we have disagreements, but you love Jesus. And you've done so well in serving him that a huge crown is awaiting you. Wesley actually didn't die then, and Whitfield died first. And at his request, Whitfield, Wesley preached at Whitfield's funeral. And this is what he said. This is so relevant for us today. There are many doctrines of a less essential nature with regard to which even the most sincere children of God are and have been divided for many ages. In these we may think and let think we may agree to disagree. That's what humility towards each other looks like. And that's the kind of humility that attracts God's presence. That's the kind of person that God says more. I'm going to give more of myself to them. You know, not only does it attract God's presence and his attention, this is the kind of humility that will draw the loss to Christ. You know, I don't know who said this, but this is so powerful. Listen to this quote. You will never win anyone to Christ because you are skillful at arguing, but you will, will, some, you will win someone to Christ because of your humility. Those who don't believe in Jesus observe how his followers treat each other. It pushes them away from God when we argue with each other, when we tear each other down, and we can't get along. But what an impact that it has on them when we love each other and we respect each other, even in our disagreements. So humility is the first thing we see that draws God's attention. The next thing we saw in those verses is someone who is contrite. So what does it mean to be contrite? To be contrite means that we are broken over sin. This is good news for us. God is not looking for the person who never sins. He's not looking for somebody who's perfect. He's looking for somebody who is broken over sin. And what does it mean to be broken over sin? Being broken over sin doesn't mean we beat ourselves up. Being broken over sin doesn't mean that we walk around with a weight of guilt and condemnation on us. Being broken over sin means that we acknowledge the ugliness of that sin. We hate that sin. We, we don't hate ourselves. There's a big difference. And it means that we go to God and we ask him to cleanse us and heal us and transform us. And I think right now that there is a trend that downplays the seriousness of sin. You know, instead of calling it for what it is, we say things like, we made a mistake. And maybe that kind of makes us feel better about sinning, you know, because it has such a lighter connotation. We made a mistake. You know, locking our keys in our car, that, that's making a mistake. Sin is very different. And maybe you're saying, well, Kelly, you're, you're making such a big deal over a word. You know, here's why this is so important. When we downplay the seriousness of sin, we are also downplaying the weightiness of the cross. You know, I don't think that's anyone's intentions when, when we say that we made a mistake. But I, to, to, you know, we're not intentionally trying to take away from Christ's suffering. But I think what, it, what happens is that we forget the seriousness of sin. We forget the destructiveness of sin. We forget the extent that Jesus went to to deal with that sin on our behalf. And so when we are broken over our sin, we don't downplay it. We don't justify it. We don't make excuses for it. Instead, we go to God in all of our brokenness. And how does he respond to us? 
with tenderness and grace. Psalm 34, 18 says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. Another translation says that he saves those with a contrite spirit. See, when we go to God, he doesn't hold us at arm's length. He doesn't say, earn your way back to me. Go change this, this, and that. He doesn't reject us and say, you know what, one, one too many times. We've already been here before, N not again. No, he gives us his grace on top of grace. He is near to us, ready to heal us and pick us back up. And you know what we do when we go to him in brokenness? We then rest in his grace as being sufficient. We rest in his grace as being enough. We don't have to walk around beating ourselves up, carrying guilt and shame. He already took that for us. So we see the kind of person that God is drawn to. Again, not the person without sin, not the person who has been perfect and without regret. No, the person who's broken over that sin and has brought that sin to the foot of the cross. The last description we see of a person that God looks to is this, the person who trembles at his word. So what does it mean to tremble at his word? You know, one of my favorite parts of weddings, um, it is my favorite part, is to see the groom's face as the bride walks down the aisle. You know, more often than not, he's somewhat trembling. Um, not out of fear, although sometimes out of fear. <laughs> but, but usually out of awe, out of an excitement, out of this anticipation. He's moved, he's impressed by his bride's beauty. And in a sense, that's what it looks like to tremble at God's word. Are we in awe of God's word? Are we impressed by it? Are we moved by it? Are we surrendered to all that it says? Are we excited to open it? You know, my parents have had an incredible influence on my faith. And I just wanna say, I know you guys are a younger crowd, but to any parents in the room and younger people, store this away for later from when you have kids. Much of the fruit of what they sowed in me did not happen overnight. It took years to see that fruit. And so you sow the seeds and then you wait on God and you allow him to bring the fruit. But both of my parents have, have had different effects on my faith in different ways. Um, my mom is a worshiper. She loves to worship. She gets so excited to worship. Um, if you stand on her good side, because she's got one arm she can't move and the other one is she can move, um, you need to be careful. <laughs> because there's times she's gotten so excited in worship, she's thrown up her arm and like smacked me in the face more, more than one time because she's just gotten excited. I think it's hereditary because I've done that to my kids a couple of times as well. Um, my mom and I, we send each other um, different worship songs that we hear throughout the week. And, and I think our goal is just to make the other one cry as we just sit and listen to these worship songs. Now, my dad loves worship too, but his greatest influence over my faith has been his love for the word of God. I can remember so many times growing up, I can close my eyes and I can picture his face sitting at his chair with his Bible open. Even to this day, you know, I'm 42 years old, and I still stop by his house. What are you doing, Dad? He's studying the Word of God. I remember one time I said to him, Dad, I love how deeply you love the Word of God. And he looked back at me, and he said, Kelly, he said, what I love is the God of the Word. 
You see, the whole Bible speaks of Jesus. It is all about him. It is the revelation of who he is. In it, we see his beauty and his worth. And just like a groom who maybe after many years lost some of that excitement and awe over his bride because of familiarity, sometimes you and I lose that same excitement over God's word. We become familiar with it. You know, the Bible is so accessible to us. Every single one of you right now can probably pull it up on your phone. You have Bibles in your home. What if that accessibility and freedom are taken away? You know, I was so moved recently reading an article about the, the Christians in China. And there are many Christians that have been in prison for their faith. And they talk about how the, their greatest need is for their friends and their family to sneak them in scripture verses on little pieces of paper. And they take those little pieces of paper and they quickly memorize it. And the reason why they memorize it is because they said that it's just a matter of time before guards take it away from them. And they're willing to be tortured. They're willing to be beat up when they are caught. And this is one of the things that one of them said. He said that they may be able to take away this little piece of paper that I have, but they cannot take away what has been embedded at my heart, in my heart. That's what it looks like to tremble at God's word. That's what it looks like to be in awe, to treasure it. Do we have that same trembling at his word? You know, maybe some of you here today say, you know what, the Bible is just a bunch of fairy tales. It's a bunch of stories. No, it's not. Stories and fairy tales don't transform lives. You know, there have been so many through the years that have tried to disprove and even destroy the word of God. And you know what? The word of God has outlasted all of them. Voltaire, he was a well-known atheist, and he boasted that, he said this, he would see the end of the Bible in his lifetime. And when he died, the Bible Society bought his house, and out of his house, they produced thousands of Bibles to be, to be distributed. You cannot destroy what is indestructible. The Bible is not going anywhere, and it is unlike any book that you will ever read. Let me give you a snapshot of what the word of God does for us. The word of God corrects us, convicts us, shapes us. The word of God encourages, leads, and guides us. The word of God brings healing and wholeness to us. The word of God sets us free from the chains that bind us. The word of God brings great peace to those who love it. The word of God reveals Jesus. Let's not take the word of God for granted. It is too precious and it is too vital for us to neglect it. In Proverbs, we read that the word of God is more precious than silver or gold. Do we see the word of God for the treasure that it is? You know, we have to get past this idea that we open up the word of God to do him a favor. He doesn't need us to do that. You and I need it for ourselves. We need it for our own encouragement. We need it for life. We need it for hope. God's presence is attracted to the person who loves his word. God gives more to the person who loves his word. So we've seen today that God looks to those who are humble. 
those who are broken over sin, and those who treasure his word. This is the person that God's presence rests on in a greater way. Not so that you have a better parking spot and get an extra piece of chicken or that all of life goes well, but so that people will see Jesus through our lives. So the question is, what do we do? If we look at our lives and we see that maybe we are not those things, that we can't say that they are true about us. And the answer is simple. We cry out to God and we say, I am not those things, but make me those things. Show me more of your grace and let it humble me. Just give me such a deep conviction of the Holy Spirit that I will be broken over sin. Give me such a love for your word and a desire to know it and to be in it. Jesus is the greatest example of all that we have been talking about today. In humility, Jesus got on the ground to wash the dirty, stinky feet of those that he knew would betray and abandon him. That's what humility looks like. Jesus never had to be contrite over sin because he was sinless. He was perfect. He didn't have to be broken over sin, but he was broken over our sin in our place when he gave his body for us. And he was also so surrendered to God's words that when he was facing the cross, when he was facing all that he would suffer for you and I, he said, not my will, your will be done. As we close, I just wanna talk for a minute to those in here who wouldn't call yourself a Christian. Maybe you know what it's like to be rejected by others. You know, I told a silly story in the beginning of, of somebody who, who made me kind of feel like I wasn't good enough, but maybe you know what it's like through the way a parent has treated you, through the way a spouse has treated you, somebody else in your life, you were made to feel not good enough. And there's several chapters before the verse we looked at today. It said something about Jesus in Isaiah 42, three, that he would come to do it. And when you first look at it, you think, that's kind of, you know, what, is, what does that mean? But let me read the verse and then, and then we'll talk about it. He says, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And so you look at those two things in this verse, what good can be made of a broken reed or a smoldering wick? In the eyes of the world, they are of no use. Just things to be thrown out, tossed aside. <coughs> Excuse me. but not with Jesus. Jesus is tender toward those who have felt tossed aside, for those who have felt rejected, for those who have felt worthless. Remember I said in the beginning, he doesn't say do this, this, and that, and maybe I will accept you. He says, come to me as you are and let me heal and transform you. And in a minute, I'm gonna give you a chance to respond, but, but as we close, I just wanna pray for us and then pray for anybody who would like to put their trust in Christ. God, we praise you. We just thank you for the incredible God that you are, that you don't look for the perfect and the talented and those who never struggle. Lord God, you look for those who are humble before you, Lord God, those who are broken over sin, Lord God, those who love your word. That is the kind of person 
that you rest your presence on. That is the kind of person that you make a bright shining light like Doug talked about in this last series. And so I pray that you would fashion us and change us and make us into that kind of person. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that you said that you remember our frame. God, that we are but dust. When we come to you as we are, you don't squash us. You don't say, see, I told you so. No, you say my grace is sufficient. And you pour your mercy out on us again and again. God, we have every reason to praise and worship your name in this place. We have every reason to treat each other with humility and with kindness because of how you have treated us. If you're here today and you wanna put your trust in Christ, there is no magic prayer that, that saves you, but it often starts with a prayer. It starts with a, a, a turning to him. And so if that's something that you wanna do, would you just pray this, something like this with me? Jesus, thank you for coming for me. Thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for taking all of my sin and all of my shame on yourself. Please come into my life. Please transform my life. Take all of my brokenness, all of my woundings, my hurts, my scars, and walk with me all the days of my life. I said earlier that following God does not mean that his favor makes everything perfect in life for us, and it doesn't. But it means that we have a mighty God who is with us to walk through life together. So let our hearts now respond in just incredible worship for the amazing Savior that we have.